going to uh, jump into a short series on missions. But today, uh, we're going to finish up a short series uh, on the book of Job. Uh, Anybody ever read the book of Job before? I would say, isn't it an awesome book, but it's kind of depressing, right? (laughs) It's a really, really good book, but it's really depressing. Uh, And here's why. Because it's about a man and his life of suffering. It's about a good man whose life was a life of suffering. And last week, we really unpacked just the first chapter of Job. We just looked at it, and we talked about perspective, right? Because we see things one way, but God sees them an entirely different way. We have this really narrow view because we can only see the here and now, but God sees it all. And we looked at Job's life, and we saw one day he had everything, the next day he had nothing, and he didn't understand why. And somehow he was still able to worship God in that moment of grief, And it's an incredible story, and I feel like we didn't really do it justice, and I know for sure we're not going to be able to do the whole book of Job justice, uh, because it's it's like 50 chapters of of things that happened to Job and these conversations he has. So uh, last week we looked at that and about perspective, and this week, uh, what I would really like to do is I'm going to try my best in, you know, 20 minutes, 25 minutes, to give you an overarching view of the rest of the book of Job. Uh, I'm not going to stand up here and read it because there wouldn't be enough time for me to read the whole book of Job. Uh, but I'm going to pull some things out of it for us to see. Uh, but just to give you a summary, here's, here's the deal. Uh, Job was a man. Uh, he was a really good man. The first few verses of Job tell us that he was righteous. He was blameless and upright. There was no one else in the land like him. He was wealthy, well-respected by his peers, and he was an amazing father. Uh, if, you, if you hadn't read it yet before, like his, his kids would have feasts, which was normal, and he would go offer a sacrifice to God just in case they sinned. Not knowing they did, but just in case. So it makes me feel a little guilty as a parent. Like I'm, Sometimes I'm like, you got what you deserved, and Job's out there offering a sacrifice just in case his kids sinned. And sometimes I'm like, well, you weren't looking where you were running. Good for you, right? So I feel like I don't live up, right? So I feel like I don't live up, but that's, Job, Job was that righteous that upright, he was a good father, great man, all of those things, yet God allowed some things to happen in his life. Uh, he allowed uh, Satan to come and do some things in Job's life, and it was in, in an instant, he lost all of his land, he lost all of his property, he lost all of his cattle and livestock, and he lost all of his children, just like that, gone. And that is just really tough to hear and think about. As a parent, we, uh, my wife and I, we have uh, three girls and a boy, and I just think about like losing them, and it just devastates me. And here's Job living it. In an instant, he lost everything. Yet he did not curse God, and he did not sin in his thing. He, he somehow understood some perspective that God was still all-powerful that sometimes we fail to see. Uh, so today, I want to I just kind of finish up what happened to him, because that actually wasn't the end of Job's suffering. If you've not read Job before, that's not the end. That was just the beginning. And that's weird, and that's incredible, and you're like, what What in the world? And I'm not going to read the whole thing, but in Job chapter 2, we find the same story we saw in Job chapter 1, where the angels were coming before God, Satan also comes and says, basically this, you can take all, uh, away all of, them, of a person's things, fine, but until you uh, afflict them personally, physically, it, you know, it won't make a difference. So uh, Satan actually says this, skin for skin... A man will give all he has for his own life. Stretch out your hand and strike Job's flesh and bones, and he will surely curse you to your face. And uh, the Lord says, go ahead and do it. Which, again, right? I don't understand how that works. Why would God let that happen? But God's like, yeah, sure, go ahead. Job can take it. (laughs) I'm sure Job's like, thanks, God. I appreciate that. Uh, And so uh, Job 
ends up getting afflicted with uh, painful sores from the soles of his feet to the top of his head. Uh, Probably some sort of boils, leprosy, some sort of skin disease that was everywhere and super, super painful. And he, uh, he took broken pottery and was scraping himself as he sat amongst the ashes. That doesn't paint a very pretty picture, does it? That sounds very, very painful and ugly. And then to add to it, Job's wife shows up and says, what are you doing? Just curse God and die. Literally, that's what she says. Are you still holding on to your integrity? Curse God and die. And if I'm Job, I'm thinking, what in the world is happening right now? We just lost everything, right? And now I'm suffering and you're telling me to just give up. Because that's what she was doing. But Job replies, you're talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? And in all this, Job did not sin. Talk about like some impossible standards to live up to, by the way, right? Job's story is just completely incredible because we see the depth of his suffering and yet his integrity to, to not blame God, to accept the bad that had happened, understanding that God knew things better than he did. And here, here's where the story gets really interesting. And I, I'm going to summarize some things for you. And then, I, then we've got some different views of suffering. But along this time, Job's three friends show up. Uh, because it was, uh, it was culturally normal when there was a great loss or a loss in a family that all of your friends and family would come and mourn with you. Right? We do that today in times of loss. Right? They would come and mourn with you. So his three friends show up. Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, which they are winners in the name department. Uh, but they heard what happened and they came together to come and comfort him. When they saw him from a distance, they could hardly recognize him. Why? Because he had all those sores, right? And he was scraping himself with pottery and weeping and mourning because he lost all of his kids and property and everything. So they came and they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights and no one said a word to him because they saw how great his suffering was. That's a long time. It's a long time. And I think one of the things we can glean from here, and it's not really the sermon today, but if we're really the body of Christ and we're brothers and sisters in Christ, there are times that we need to just come and be with somebody who's experiencing loss or suffering in the moment. Because there are times we won't have the right words to say, and it won't even matter the words we say. Because the reality is people just remember that you're there and not really the things you say. Does that make sense? It's something I've learned in ministry time and time again that I'll walk into situations or people walk into my office and I don't have the right words to say. I just sit there and listen. And give them a hug. And that's the best I can do because I don't know the words. I don't have a magic word that'll fix everything. But Job's friends came and sat with him and part of that was cultural, part of that was the way it was and part of that was just being a smart friend in the moment. But then here's where the story kind of takes a diversion. The next chapters, the next chapters are spent having this intense discussion between Job and his three friends. And Job talking about how great God is and how undeserved he was of all of these things. And all three of his friends begin to point out why they think Job was being punished and why Job was suffering. 
And they all had slightly different views as to, to why, why this happened. Uh, Elphaz said, you sinned, Job. Because of your sin, this is happening to you. Bildad said, uh, God wouldn't punish you if you were actually blameless, so you must have some sort of secret sin. Zophar echoed that and said, you have secret sin in your life that you just haven't confessed yet. And so they're trying to justify this, right? But if we think back to this idea of perspective, right? Like we see things one way, God sees them a different way. Will we ever really know the reason behind things and why things have happened to us? No. But one of the things we do as humans is we always try to like figure things out. It's part of our curiosity. We try to understand why. Because, you know, it's A plus B equals C. There's there's a reason. There's got to be a reason. How many times have you said that before, right? Like this is happening. There's got to be a reason, We do that all the time, and sometimes we're just not going to know the reason. But here's where we can get misguided, just like Job's friends. Job's friends were trying to find an explanation, so they were just kind of making stuff up. They were trying to find what would stick. And they kept taking turns. Actually, they had three rounds of going at Job. Each of them took their, their, their punches at Job and said, no, you've sinned. So they would each take a turn, and then Job would respond and be like, no, that you're, you're wrong. And then they'd each take a turn, and Job would be like, no, you're wrong. And they'd each take a turn, and Job would say, no, you're wrong. And they'd go through this process, and then a young man shows up in this picture. And it's clear from Scripture he's not part of this friend group. But for some reason, he's sitting there and listening and watching this discussion happen. And, and um, his name's Elihu, and uh, he's sitting there and watching it, and he he has a really unique perspective and he's listening to everybody and oftentimes he says, listen to me, I know I'm young, I know this, I know that. Uh, but he, he summarizes it as this. He says, suffering is God's way to teach and discipline and refine. And he was right to an extent, but then he used some weird means to justify it. So you guys kind of get this picture. I know I'm talking a lot about this story, but you know, Job's suffering, his friends come along and first they do the right thing, they're with him. But then they try to explain away why things are happening without really knowing why things were happening. You guys following so far? All right, but this is the basis for for the rest of the message. So this is important. So the first three, you've sinned or you're hiding sin or you have secret sin. Uh, Elihu comes along and says, hey, suffering is God's way to teach and discipline and correct and do those things, which is true. But he gave some other reasons that were kind of, they weren't all there. And then the best part is, after all this, God shows up and speaks through a storm. Uh, How many of you guys wish in the middle of your storm, God would audibly speak to you? Because I do all the time. And I just wish God would speak to me. And you see it happen in scriptures. You're like, God, why not now? And uh, I don't know that answer either. But uh, (laughs) he shows up. And instead of answering the question as to why Job is suffering, he asks a bunch of questions that all point to the fact that Job and his friends would never understand how God thinks. It's three chapters of, have you considered this? Have you considered this? Have you considered this? And all, all God's doing is saying, you can't even get on my level. You can't even see how I see. And at this, Job uh, repents of any wrongdoing in this process, and God restores him. So today, it, we're going we're gonna to kind of look at some things, and we're going to look at some responses to suffering. We're going to look at some questions that we ask in suffering, and we're going to kind of do our best to resolve them. Is that all right? All right. So Job's story actually gives us four distinct views of suffering and pain in our lives. So if we look at it, the first one we have is this, is we can see Satan's view on suffering. And his view is this, is that people believe in God only when they are prospering, not in suffering. Right? Because he goes before God and he says, yeah, yeah, yeah. 
People love you because things are going well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. People love you because it's all good and gravy, right? Job chapter 1, verses 9 through 11 says, Does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied, Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hand so that his flocks and herds have spread through the land. But now stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. Satan's view is very narrow. He doesn't believe that we can love God for just who he is. He was trying to point out that people only love him because good things happen. And we certainly know people like that in our lives, right? If you really boil down some of your relationships, you know that some people only want to be around you when things are going well. Or maybe you've got a handout or you'll treat them out for lunch or whatever. I remember in high school, like, I tried not to be the moocher. Because if you can't figure out who the moocher is, it's probably you. Right? So I tried not to be that way. But there was always that one friend, right, that always forgot their wallet. You know, or didn't have that thing. Or, you know, whatever. And they really only cared about you when that happened. They didn't really care about... uh, uh, you know, who you were. And then when things got bad or you weren't buying lunch, gone, right? We still have some of those relationships in our life. So that was Satan's view on suffering, all right? Job's three friends had a totally different view on suffering. Their perspective essentially boils down to this, is that suffering is God's judgment for sin. And I touched on this last week, but the reality is, uh, if, if you have a relationship with God, You'll do things and you know they're sinful, right? You know you've messed up. And I don't know if you're like me, but when I do those things, I'm like, oh, something bad's going to happen now because I just messed up again. Because why? It's an equation, right? I do good, God's good to me, things are good and gravy. I sin, bad things happen, and I need to repent of my sins. It's not linear like that. It's a little bit different, but their perspective was that suffering only comes because you have sin in your life. We see this echoed in the New Testament where Jesus was ministering to people who were paralyzed and blind, and people would ask him, what sin did they commit? What sin did their parents commit? And what would Jesus say? Jesus said, it it has nothing to do with that. It was actually to show my power and my sovereignty over all of these things. So that perspective is also wrong, right? So Satan's view is wrong. Because we can love God without having good things. We see it time and time again. Uh, Job's three friends' perspective is wrong because it's not a A plus B equals C equation because bad things happen to good people regardless. And then a different perspective we see is that young man's, Elihu's perspective is this, is that suffering is God's way to teach and discipline and refine, which is true to an extent. It's true to an extent. We can always learn through pain and suffering. We can always grow Uh, But God doesn't necessarily make you suffer to cause all of those grow things. He doesn't make that happen every single time to bring out something good in you. You can grow in good times. So Elihu's perspective was limited. He's not wrong. Suffering and pain can be used to grow because why? Discipline is painful at the time, but it causes growth. I discipline my kids in hopes that they will learn and grow and change how they act. God does the same thing with us. So this is right, but it's limited. Why? Because, again, we live in a fallen world and bad things just happen. Bad things just happen. And sometimes we're not going to know the reason behind and we're not going to know all those things and it gets really messy. So Elihu's perspective is right, but not all the way there. And then finally, we also see God's perspective at the end of the story. We see this, that suffering causes us to trust God for who he is and not what he does. And that changes the game a little bit, doesn't it? That really changes how we should view God 
and especially view him in times of pain and suffering. Because what happens when we, we suffer and, we're, and we're, we're hurting and we're doing all those things? The first person to get the lion's share of the blame is God. But do I trust God because he's good to me or do I trust God for who he is? Those are real questions we have to ask ourselves. We have to wrestle with that. And I, I would dare say that we kind of like have this balance of those things in our lives. We, we believe and trust God because of, what he, of who he is. But we also are like, well, he's done some really good things for me. And sometimes those things are torn away from us. And we have to be like, okay, I'm going to trust you because you are love. I'm going to trust you because you see the whole picture. I'm going to trust you because you're the all-powerful creator of the universe. And you didn't have to do anything for me, but you did. So God's perspective in asking all of those questions about nature and the cosmos and all of those different things is that suffering is causing us to trust God for who he is, not what he does. And this is another uh, issue of perspective, right? Uh, So I, I talked about it last week, but I brought a puzzle with me this week. All right? So this is a puzzle we used at Snow Camp a few years ago. It's got the Immersed logo on it. And uh, it's really, I wish it was bigger, but it's just a nice, cool, light cross on the front, all right? So if I was trying to put together my life puzzle, and uh, first of all, I didn't know what the box looked like, right? Because what's the first thing you do when you do a puzzle? You dump out all the pieces, and you set the box up looking at you, and you find the four corners, right? And then you do around the edge, and then you start to fill in the middle. But if you don't know what the picture looks like, it's kind of hard to fill it in. And how much harder is it even then when we're only given a few pieces? And we drop them everywhere, evidently. All right? The puzzle becomes almost impossible. Because we can't make the pieces fit. We don't know what the picture looks like. Right? So we could have four pieces that aren't even connected yet, but we try to force them to connect. And this is our problem with perspective because in my hand I hold four pieces of this puzzle, but I have no idea how they connect because I can't see the whole picture and I don't have all the pieces. Every day of our lives is another piece in this puzzle, right? Every day of our lives is another piece in this puzzle and God's intricately putting it together piece by piece, a little bit at a time. And we struggle because we're like, God, I can only see these four pieces and they don't connect at all. How is this going to be part of my life story, God? It's perspective. And when we suffer and when we're in pain and bad things are happening to us and we feel undeserved of them, we have to trust who God is and that he knows the whole picture. And he has a plan for our lives, regardless of how we feel, regardless of everything else going on, because we see these little itty-bitty pieces and he sees the whole puzzle. He sees the whole puzzle. So in times of suffering, we also begin to ask ourselves some questions. So uh, I, found, I found some common questions. I was doing some research, uh, reading through my Bible, doing some research, and I found some common questions and some answers to it when we encounter pain and suffering. And uh, these are questions and responses we ask ourselves, and they're also questions and responses people ask us. Uh, because all too often, we're not very good friends, and we ask, well, what'd you do? Right? What'd you do to deserve that? Just like Job's friends did. That's what happens. So uh, let's just work through those and and see some of the the answers to the questions. So number one, 
I think we all ask ourselves this when bad things happen. Am I being punished by God for my sin? Right? It, it essentially is like, why God, why? Am I being punished? Uh, the response to that is, we won't know the answer if we are or not, but we can certainly confess to any wrongdoing we have in our lives. You know how like when, when big things break down, you always try the little things first to fix it? Like I'm not a mechanic, but I do try to do some work on my, my own vehicles, and I always know that the simplest solution is where I want to start. So if it could just be a spark plug, I'm going to start there. I don't want to go take out the starter because that's a lot of work, but I could try a spark plug. I could try some other things first. So you start with the simple solutions, right? So have I done anything? Am I being punished for my sins? What's the first and easiest thing to do? Confess any sin to God. To just say, God, I, I don't know what's going on, but here, 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 have it all, right? Because uh, God, here's our confession. Proverbs 28, 13 says this, whoever conceals their sins does not prosper, but the one who confesses and renounces them finds mercy. There's a number of New Testament passages on confession as well. Confession is very powerful. And uh, regardless if we're trying to figure out why we're suffering or not, like confession should be an active part of our life. Uh, Because there's something about verbalizing the sin we know that's in our life, even though God already knows it. There's something powerful about verbalizing it and repenting from that. Another question we ask ourselves or people will tell us is happening is, is Satan attacking me? And I, I, I'm going to answer this question seriously, but I also want you to know something to, that's true too, is that more often than not, Satan is not personally attacking us. Your car breaks down. It's probably not a spiritual attack. It could be, but it's probably not. You run out of gas, Satan's not after you. You just forgot to fill up the gas tank, right? Okay, there, there are times where we, we are our own worst enemy and we try to attribute that to Satan and we give him way too much credit. There are times when there are definitely bad things that happen that are outside our control and there, there are those. But have you ever known those people that like hyper-spiritualize every single thing? And I, trust me, spiritual warfare is real, Satan and demons, is, they're real. Like all of that stuff that happens. But oftentimes I'm like, eh, I think probably we could have just done some routine maintenance and probably helped ourselves a little bit better there. You know, like, so before I answer this question in a much more serious manner is, is the reality that sometimes we have to check ourselves and just say, cars break down. I forgot to put gas in it. This, you know, I didn't do what I was supposed to do. But to answer this question, is Satan attacking me? There are some things we can do. If we feel like Satan is attacking us and there's some real spiritual warfare going on in our lives, we can call on God for strength. Psalm 28, 7 through 8 says, The Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusts in him and he helps me. My heart leaps for joy and with my song I praise him. The Lord is the strength of his people, a fortress of salvation for his anointed one. It's very powerful, very vivid picture there, right? A shield, a fortress, a safe place, right? That's what I hear in that is safety. So if we feel like we're being attacked, we can, we can uh, find safety in the name of the Lord. The name of the Lord is a strong tower, right? The righteous run into it and they are saved. Like there are so many different things. So is Satan attacking me? We can find refuge and safety in, in Christ. Number three, am I being prepared for a special service, learning to be compassionate to those who suffer. So let me, let me say that in a different way. Is this happening to me so I can minister to other people? That's how I hear that question. And as a pastor, like, that's my profession, right? Like, every piece of my life, I feel like I'm like, ooh, what's God trying to teach me in this lesson? You know, and then I have to remind myself, sometimes just things happen, right? And maybe there's not a lesson in it, but more often than not, there, there is. But what I also know is that some of the people 
who have spoken into my life at the deepest levels are people who had been where I have been. They understand how I tick because they were the same way. And I know that there are people uh, that I can relate to much better than other people. I was not the high school athlete, right? So I, I can't relate to that feeling of high school athletics, but I was a super band nerd and choir and drama and all of that stuff. So I can 100% get on that level and understand why, because I was there. And God can certainly work through our situations. And when we feel like maybe this is a situation we can glean some stuff through, uh, we, can, we can do a few things. We can resist self-pity. Say, woe is me. Why is God choosing me for this? <laughs> right? Because there are times we're like, why is this happening to me? But we can also ask God to open up opportunity to minister to those who suffer in similar ways. Uh, we can say, hey, you know what? This bad thing happened to me, but here's what I learned. I want you to, to respond better. I want you to be able to deal on it in a, in a way I couldn't. I want, you to, I want to tell you the truth about what it means because I was there and now you're there and I can, I can speak some life into you. Which is a whole different like, series of messages because we can do all those things and people still won't want to listen to what we have to say. But the reality is God can work all of these things and provide opportunities for us to speak into other people's lives in an entirely different way than I can or Dana can or my wife can or anybody can. Because you've been there, you've done that, and you get it. Uh, James 1, 2 through 4 says this, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. I don't like that verse. Right? Consider it not just joy. What kind of joy? Pure joy. Nope. I don't want to. (laughs) Why? Because our feelings, right? Right? We don't feel joy, so we don't want to experience joy like that. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know the testing of your faith produces perseverance, and let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking in anything. Thank you. You know, like it's supposed to be an encouraging passage of scripture, and yet when you're in a storm and you read that and you're like, pure joy? Nope. Uh, testing of my faith. No, thanks. I'm done with that. Perseverance. Nope. I'd rather this be over right now. That's just being real and raw, right? But sometimes we have to weather the storm to get to the other side. And we're stronger because of it. And we understand things a little bit differently than we have before. Another question we can ask ourselves or people can ask us is this is, uh, am I specifically selected for testing like Job was? I would contend more often than not, the answer is no to this question. However, it is possible. So what do we do? We can accept help from each other. We can trust God to, let his, uh, to work his purpose through us. Psalm 9.10 says this, Those who know your name trust in you, for you, Lord, have never forsaken those who seek you. So in moments of suffering, and we feel like, man, I'm being tested right now, seek God. Pursue him. Worship him do those things. We can choose to do those things even though we don't feel it, right? Feelings lie. We've talked a lot about that over the last, last few weeks. Feelings lie. And we can choose to do a lot of different things. Another question we can ask ourselves is, is my suffering a result of natural consequences for which I am not directly responsible, aka because the world is messed up? Uh, more often than not, I think this is probably where we lie. We live in a very broken and sinful world. We live in a world that's been marred by sin 
for thousands of years. And people just are mean. People say hurtful things. People do hurtful things. We're messed up. Not just as a society, but people for thousands of years have been. Why? It's sin. So bad things happen, and what do we do with that? How do we rationalize that? We first recognize that we live in a sinful world, and good and bad people suffer. But as a believer, we have a promise from God that this suffering is temporary. Revelation paints this beautiful picture. Revelation 21, 1 through 4 says this. John is talking and he says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. Which, before I even get to the rest of it, which is really cool, isn't that incredible to think about? That someday God will dwell among us, and we can experience what Adam and Eve and some of those uh, people in the Old Testament got to do when they walked and talked with God. That just blows me away. But then here's the part we, we hear at funerals and different things, and it's certainly true. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. That is our promise as believers. And it's strong, and it's very, like, hopeful, right? Because I don't know about you, but, like, crying because I'm hurting is not pleasant, Dealing with hard things is not pleasant. But if you're a believer, this is the worst it will ever be. Right? Even your best moments here on earth are the worst it will ever be. Because we have an eternity of dwelling with God ahead of us. The final question uh, we can ask ourselves, and usually some people come and ask us too, is my suffering due to some unknown reason? Can I not attribute it to anybody? Or anything. And between the sinful one and this one, that's like 95% of our suffering, I think, is just due to sin and unknown reasons. So what do we do in response to that? We, we can't draw inward from pain. We have to proclaim our faith loudly. We have to keep showing up. Because what do we do, right? We blame God and then we try to isolate ourselves. We try to pull inward and say, No one else understands. Nobody else gets it. I'm the only one feeling this way. I can't can't ask for help because I'm embarrassed. I can't, you know, we, we, we have a million reasons why we should suffer in silence and by ourselves. But the reality is we are the body of Christ. And we should be here for each other. And we can, we can do that together. And we have to force ourselves in moments of pain and suffering to not pull ourselves inward, but to turn to people we trust and can speak life into us who will just come and sit with us for seven days and seven nights. We have to keep showing up. We have to proclaim our faith loudly in God. And this this just brings to mind a couple of stories. And one is, uh, just very briefly, when Paul and Silas were in prison in the New Testament, they were bound in chains. They were in an ugly, ugly prison. Uh, Prisons then were not what they are now. They were caves with creatures crawling all over, and they were shackled with metal shackles or wooden stocks, and they were suffering. And in their moments of suffering, do you know what they did? They sang hymns loudly. They sang hymns loudly. And in their case, God sent a mighty earthquake and set them all free. And it's a fantastic story. But what I see there is I see two men who loved God so much that even in their suffering, they chose 
to worship and praise God. And uh, I introduced a song to the youth group. It's called Raise a Hallelujah. And uh, we were singing it. And some of those verses are, are, are just powerful. I raise a hallelujah in the presence of my enemies. I raise a hallelujah uh, when, when, the, when, it, when the dark the, and the darkness flees. Like I'm jumbling over the words here. But uh, the, the, the chorus says, louder and louder, you're going to hear my praises ring. What if that was our response instead of pulling inward? Do you think our dealings with pain and suffering would be different? If in, in the face of those, we sing God's praises louder and louder, knowing that our perspective is not his, right? Like we only have this handful of puzzle pieces. But I'm going to praise him louder and louder and louder in the middle of a storm, right? Like I, I could just sing the song for you and it would be super powerful, but uh, I don't have my guitar, so I'll, I'll spare you this time. All right? So here's how we're going to close. We're going to take communion here in just a moment. Uh, but I want to I close with just a picture. So, uh, Jody, would you put the first picture up there? And many of you have probably heard, heard this before, but got some broken china, right? First of all, as a kid, were you ever the one to, like, drop the china and get in big trouble? Okay, that was me too, all right? Uh, but there is a, there's a Japanese art of fixing broken pieces of pottery and formal, formal wear where they take a special lacquer that's got gold or silver or some other precious metal in it. And they use that to repair the broken pottery. So Jody. And what you see here is you see how they have taken something that's broken and made it beautiful again. But in an in a completely different way. Does that look like the original cup? No. Is it still beautiful? Yes. And actually now it's more valuable, isn't it? Because not only is it unique, but it also has precious metals in it. So it's, it's financial values more. And now it's also got better value to the, to the eye. It looks really unique. Selling those things at auctions, you're going to make a lot more than a normal piece of you know, of, of pottery or China, right? Because it's unique. And in our lives, God is trying to do the same things. He's trying to take our broken mess, that first picture, and he's taking it and he's taking what he can, only he can do, right? He's repairing some things, making them beautiful again in a different way and saying, if you only could see what I could see right now. If you only knew what I know, if you could only see the big picture that, that you're going to be a unique piece of art that can speak to people totally different than you could before. And he weaves it all together. And it's beautiful. That's why we can say things in, in Christian music, right? Like beautifully broken. Because in the process, God is weaving things back together in a very, very special way. So would you stand with me? We're going to close, and we're going we're to close with communion. And um, 